Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. This is the Golf Under Par Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy McCullough. We are on a journey to find the information that's going to help you play the best golf of your life. Join us now as we dive in. Welcome, everybody, to the Golf Under Par Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy McCullough. I'm here with Scott Fawcett. we got a great episode here planned for us to talk about game management and, you know, improving your, your ability to play, play this wonderful game that we have the opportunity to play. And... For those that don't know, Scott's the creator of Decade System, an app to go along with that to help golfers improve their performance on the course and to, to better understand you know, what really matters when it comes to scoring. So, Scott, thank you so much for coming on here, and welcome. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I always enjoy these chats and see where they kind of meander around. Exactly. So we'll see, we'll see what, how, how much we get off topic, and that'll be perfectly fine. <laughs> So I always ask just to give people a background. I know you were a, you, you played uh, some professional golf uh, in your younger days, but what kind of got you started in golf? Yeah, you know, my dad was a good player um, back in, you know, the 80s. And I would kind of go out to the golf course with him a little bit from, you know, third through seventh or eighth grade. And but I was like most Texas kids that played all sports, basketball, football, baseball, everything. And, you know, golf was fun, but it definitely wasn't uh, my favorite thing until I I was a running back in ninth grade, I think it was, and I got nailed in the knee for the first time. And I was like, oh, that sucks. And so I started taking golf a little bit more serious. And, you know, since I was such a late, you know, start in the game, I've only played one AJGA in my entire life and, you know, really just didn't play a whole lot of golf, but managed to go play golf at Sam Houston State. And then, like you say, played for Texas A&M after I transferred after my freshman year and played professionally for six years and, here I am, forty-seven years old, twenty-five years later, and don't know what uh, what all has transpired in the in the interim. <laughs> right, time just flies, doesn't it? It does. Awesome. So I, I assume probably most of my listeners are familiar with the decade system, the decade app, and kind of what you what you profess or or kind of teach. You know, if they've not come across you on Twitter or or, or the likes, then or hopefully not. Where they are. <laughs> Yeah. And so why don't you just briefly kind of describe kind of what, what, what are your, how you, your, your, let's say elevator pitch for, for the decade system. You know, so going back to my twenties again, it's, it's interesting because I really hadn't thought about all this until I went out to Palm Springs a couple of weeks ago, about a month ago. And I worked with a lady named Troy Mullins, who she's the female world long drive champion from either 2018 or 19, but she's trying to make a go at playing professional golf. And I was out there explaining to her, I'm like, you know, look, you, you really can't, like be mad at yourself for these mistakes. You, you, she didn't even start playing golf until she was 22. She went to Cornell and was in track and field. And so she never even played golf at all. And I'm like, you just don't have the experience. And as I was explaining this to her, I was like, you know what? Again, I played golf in high school, but I never really played any AJGAs. I went to Sam Houston state my freshman year, but then I had to sit out for a year and a half because my coach wouldn't release from my scholarship played at A&M for about a year. And then 
uh, in February of my redshirt junior year, I, I destroyed my leg playing basketball. I lived with some guys on the basketball team and destroyed my leg playing basketball with them. And, you know, a year and a half later, I really hadn't even touched my clubs and I, I wind up turning pro and I, you know, I won 10 professional events on like the Hooters tour and the tight lights tour and basically every tour, but the one you want to actually win on. And honestly, looking back at it, probably about the time I was starting to, you know, develop a prefrontal cortex to actually start making good decisions was when 9-11 happened. I missed a Q school by one. I was dead broke. And I was like, I'm out. And I, I luckily, it was also the same time that Texas deregulated its electricity market. So I started selling electricity and I, my intention was always to go back and play golf. And it was just too easy. Well, fast forward about six or seven years in 2008, I had actually been friends with Chris Como for four or five years at that point. Um, we met playing in an underground poker room here in Dallas. And I started working with him on my golf game. It was the first time that I'd gotten away from like, like really technical swing thoughts and just understanding ball, ball flight laws. And, and then that combined with poker theory, I really started seeing the game different. So I actually entered Q school as a 35 year old amateur, made it through all four stages. Um, and, and apparently doing that as a guy with a full-time job is easier to do than doing it. If you uh, actually have a full-time job and trying to play the web.com yeah. tour, but, or corn fairy tour now, but so I did that for a few years and then that's, again, I'm kind of a math nerd. I've got finance and economics degrees um, again, studied poker at a high level. And that's when I started realizing with the new strokes gain statistics that I could combine all of the TrackMan shot pattern data that Como had from me, from some of his other good players, and in essence, you know, solve course management. So that's really what I did through the end of 2013. The first half of 2014 was just this kind of side project for fun, truly just for my own game in hopes of, of winning the U.S. Mid-Am. And next thing you know, I, I got a quarter zone shot the week before the Texas State Am, and I used to have to explain who I caddied for uh that week but now everybody knows who will zalatoris is so i caddied for will when he was 3300 in the world and you know just a struggling junior golfer to be perfectly honest he had, he had really struggled with his putting and just basically taking proper course management really if, if you'd asked me at the time i would have said it's all the math and the strategy and everything and in, in hindsight it really is using the math what, I, what i've done different than anyone else with teaching course managers use the math and the data and, and just all of that stuff to, to really help players with expectation management, just their emotional control. And so caddy for Willie won the Texas Sam won the U S junior while I was caddying for him. Jason Enlow is here in Dallas, uh, the SMU head coach at the time. He told me, you know, Bryson DeChambeau, he just, just plays way too aggressive you know, can you come, can you come help him? So that's really when I first started teaching, you're thinking of, of decade as a, as a product, if you will. So DeChambeau is the next person that I worked with in February of 2015. He then goes on and wins the NCAAs in the U S amateur. And it's honestly, it's just been hilarious since, but circling back to the prefrontal cortex, it's funny because I still get parents all the time when I work with their kids are like, Oh, Johnny's still doing stupid stuff. I'm like, well, again, of course he's 20 or he's 22. And you just don't have that that decision-making, you know, executive function portion of the brain just hasn't even developed yet. It's not that they're dumb. They just literally are actually incapable of making the decisions, which looking back at myself at 20 and 22, it explains a lot of my behavior. And so, you know, I started teaching this seminar in person. I, I did it at, you know, Oklahoma State, Duke, Clemson, Wake Forest, um, SMU, obviously, Texas A&M. And then after Bryson did what he did in the U.S. Amateur, the NCAA banned me from giving my seminar in person, calling it an unfair competitive advantage, which 
was a nice door prize, I guess, as they you know, put me out of business. But at that point, then I started thinking about trying to how to create an app to teach course management and combine it with statistics. And so that's essentially what the, 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 you know, the decade app is all about. It really is about teaching and, you know, it's a stats portal, but it's real purpose is teaching strategy and psychology and mindset. Again, I was a total lunatic when I was playing professionally in my twenties and, you know, I'm 47 now, so I've got less testosterone. I've got, I'm not stressed out about money. You know, that certainly all factors into why I don't freak out on the golf course anymore, but also just a better understanding of just the realities of shot patterns. There's the simple fact you don't know where the golf ball is going. Once you kind of combine all that together and then you distill it into, I, I like using video content because it's a lot, you can make your, your, your point a lot more clear with, images and video and, and just voicing over that stuff as opposed to just writing a book and drawing some pictures. So I, I decided to do the app instead of like write a book just so that way it could kind of be a, a living, breathing, uh, you know, I, I can, I can take a video in and out of the app. So once, you know, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but something from 2017 happened. Well, then if I see it again, the same thing happened, but in 2020, I'll just make the exact same video basically just, but just plug in the 2020 situation. So that way the younger players that get it, um, can, can relate to something that they actually saw on TV. And, you know, at this point, honestly, the, you know, the vast majority of the guys that are under 25, the, the Colin Morikawa's, the Doc Redman, Maverick McNeely, obviously Zalatoris, Deschambeau, all of these guys have either had the app in college or, or like Morikawa attended my seminar in, in, in college. You know, he's, it's funny because a lot of what I teach, great teachers have always taught. Colin works with Rick Sessinghouse out of California, who's absolutely incredible everything that he's done with Colin is is amazing but it also perfectly replicates decade you know the the, the way you choose your targets and, and meditation and and you know not get, you know staying present and you just see these young players coming out and, and just doing things that are, I'm going to say are relatively unheard of but at this scale in this quantity of players it's basically unheard of in the history of the game, this generation right now. And a lot of it has to do with just basically the decade principles, whether I've worked with them directly or not, they all know what it is we're doing at a minimum. Right. I mean, you, like you said, you, you based it all off on, on math and numbers. And so uh, having, you could under, anybody can understand, you know, the, if there's numbers there, it's like, okay, yeah, three is bigger than two. You know, that, that's, that's pretty simple. It doesn't matter how developed your frontal cortex is. Um, you can understand, understand the difference there. And if somebody can present it that way, like I get kind of what you do with the, the decade system, I think that that definitely has shown. Well, and as much as anything, systematizing the decision-making process, that's it because, you know, the traditional professionals yardage book, you know, it'll have some X's don't hit it over here and okay. It's okay to miss it over here. And, if you actually think about it, it, it's really totally useless information because first of all, it's not quantitative, you know, quantified. It's just emotional. And, and more importantly, like it depends on how big the green is. It depends on how severe the hazard is. It depends on where the pin is. It depends on the player, how long the shot is, what the conditions are. And in decade is just a very simple acronym, just a six step process that will not, if you know, if <laughs> you have to go through the process, but if you yeah. go through the process, it's essentially impossible for you to make, I mean, it really is. I, I was about to say that that's too aggressive, but it really is. It's basically impossible for you to make a, a strategic mental mistake because everything's accounted for. And again, in just that simple six step acronym. So why don't we talk about that a little bit? Um, you know, maybe either through an example or just talking us through, through those six kind of things that you kind of 
touch Absolutely. on. Absolutely. So, so decade is just D distance, E expectation, C correct target, A analyze, D discipline, and E execute. And, you know, obviously I play the internet bad guy on Twitter because people for whatever reason don't like change, but people would be like, well, it can't account for this. I'm like, how can you tell me what it accounts for based on a couple of 250 character tweets? Like everything's in there. The A analyze portion of it covers what the adjacent hazard is, what the course conditions are, what the weather's like. And so really the, the, the reason golf is so hard to learn to play is simply because it's the only sport in the world. I mean, it's got everything. It's funny. Everything is working against it. <laughs> it's the only sport in the world that's not played on a uniform field of competition. It's the only sport in the world that's not practiced on the field of competition. It's the only sport in the world that your shot pattern relative to your target is absolutely massive. The outside elements have the most time to interact with the ball because the ball's in the air for, you know, four to seven seconds. Um, you know, you're hitting it 300 yards away quite often, which the weather that you're having right there, the wind that you're having, it's going to go through all kinds of different variables in the air, subtle differences in bounces and breaks. And, and really that's, that's the problem with golf. So even if you give a, you know, if you're an instructor and you give a great playing lesson at your home course, your junior golfer, college golfer member, when they go off to play in a, a, a member guest at another course, they have to be able to recognize, well, this situation right here on number six at, in this tournament on the random course is exactly like the situation from number 14 in my playing lesson last week. You got to do that. You have to recognize that in 30 seconds, make the decision, think about your swing, like just none of it, none of it works. I, and I hate saying it that way, but it basically none of it works. And that's, you know, we used to think that you, you would have to get out on the PJ tour or, or you know, get out of, and, and on tour, whatever tour that is. And you would peak in your early thirties. And we thought that it was because you had to, to learn all the shots. And really that's not it. You have to get out there and finally develop that prefrontal cortex, that last piece to that, that allows you to pull all of the inputs together and then figure out what to do with it. And then by the time you're about 30, assuming you've survived that long, you're, you're ready to go. And that's the process that we've essentially circumvented. I mean, and that's the reason I, I, I got really lucky. I, I wanted to use the word decade because I wanted to imply we're going to take decades off your learning curve. And I got really lucky that that first acronym I tried, first word actually worked because I don't know what I would have done if if we would have had to go try a second word. I don't, I don't even know what that second word would have been. Yeah, yeah. You made it work, right? Um, awesome. So let's uh, let's go with, so obviously you're, you're a pretty big proponent with you know hitting driver off the tee. I think that's what everybody kind of probably knows you for most uh, at least as often as possible, the hitting off the tee. Obviously, you're not going to do that on a par three most of the time. But uh, why is that so important for most amateurs to kind of understand and grasp? Well, we used to drop back a lot, you know, and when I always say used to, I'm referring to, you know, the, the mid-90s, early 2000s. We used to drop back to three-wood all the time to make sure and hit the fairway or get it in play. And, you know, what we've definitely established with TrackMan is you just don't hit it any straighter you know, if anything, you actually hit it less straight because of the smaller head, the, the worst gear effects, the, the additional loft helps, you know, it's harder to snap hook a three with than it is a driver, but your miss hits are penalized a little bit more. And so really the three wood is just never, it's never the right club to hit off the tee unless there's something that's crossing the fairway that just makes driver just obviously not the play, whether that's a lake crossing it, you know, 30 yards, short of where you carry your, or you hit your driver too. So three would make sense. 
So really your decision comes down to it's either driver or if it's such a short, tight hull, then that's when you would consider dropping back to two iron. But even on a lot of short, tight holes, you just don't even hit your two iron that straight. I've got a, a video in the Decade app from number 15 at, at uh, Innisbrook where on the PGA Tour on a Friday, the hole's playing 195. The wind was 10 miles an hour off the left. And obviously a, a challenge of this is we don't know where everyone was aiming their shot, but every single one of the shots was hit off of a tee, off of a flat piece of ground with probably a five or a six iron for most of those guys. And the shot pattern is over 50 yards wide and 50 yards deep. And so it's, it's not like you're just going to be like, well, I'm just going to take two iron and hit it in the fairway. I got a good friend, Robbie Skinner, who we used to play. He played golf at UT with Justin Leonard and Harrison Frazier. And he, tra- he and I traveled together on the Hooters tour for a little bit. And we were going through our yardage books one night at dinner. And the first hole was just brutal wh- wherever this place was. And, and I was like, what'd you put down for number one? He goes, oh, um, hit hard hole, hit fairway, hit green. And I'm like, That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And he's like, it actually is. Like, <laughs> what kind of advice is that? But that's how we all used to think like, well, this hole's hard. Let's just go ahead and make sure we hit the fairway here. And obviously that's just not how it works at all. So driver, it, it, the math is, it's, it's just so straightforward. And this is where you see, you know, like going back to the PJ championship, you know, at, at Harding park, you know, I, I, I worked with Bryson a lot. Bryson knows exactly what I teach. I, I don't work directly with him anymore because once I'm done teaching you, like that's all I got, but I do yeah. still work with Como helping him game plan what Bryson's going to do. And, at the PGA at Harding Park, I'm like, dude, it's a driver on every single hole. There's just nowhere out here that it's not. I mean, unless those couple of drivable par forces could hit it too far or his shot shape, which is a draw with the driver, if that just doesn't work for whatever reason. And Bryson dropped back to three would way too many times. And, you know, that was kind of what I told him afterwards. I'm like, you know, he, he lost by a couple and it's, it, that's, that's where he gave up a lot of value. Um, and then going into the U S open, I'm like, okay, dude, let's try this again. It is a driver on every single hole that fits his eye with the shape. Then he took it too far to the other extreme. And even on holes like two and eight that are dog leg rights, he's still pounding driver there and trying to cut it. And those are the only two, two holes that he hit like materially bad tee shots on. And it's entirely because he was trying to shape it the opposite direction of what he should be. I'm, I'm, that's probably the most important thing with driver is yes, hit it a lot but only move it one direction. It is, it's just a really difficult club. It's the longest club in your bag with the flattest face being swung the fastest, just a really hard club to actually work both ways. And for the most part, it's largely, you know, unnecessary when you do see people trying to work it both ways. So I think that leads us pretty nicely into the next thing I want to talk about was the stock shots. So you kind of you know, prefaced it pretty nicely there. So kind of like, you're a big proponent of that. You, 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 I hear, I've heard you talk about it a number of times and, you know, essentially limiting that, that's that bad miss, uh, the cross double cross, whatever you want to call it. Um, so, you know, where, where does somebody start to kind of understand these tendencies and, and really figure out the benefit of, of their stock shot? It's, it's interesting because, you know, on the PGA tour from 180 yards in the fairway, the scoring average is, what do we got? We got 3.08, 162 yards is where they average three strokes to hole out. And once you start using that data, you know, you're not moving your, you, you like if you fade, I fade a hundred percent of my shots and it's not like my, my fade with a pitching wedge, you know, it's a couple yards, five, six yards max, not that big of a deal where you really start seeing people try to lift the pins on the left and they're going to try to hit a draw. It starts getting out there with that six, seven, eight iron. And if you actually just look at the math, 
the only reason you would ever try to hit a draw to a left pin is if you're trying to make birdie. And every, and every single one of those on the PGA Tour is going to play with a scoring average that's over par. And it's like, you know, again, I start every one of my seminars off by saying, stop trying to make birdies. And that's just the perfect thing is you, you, what I tell my tour players is if you find yourself in a situation where you're wanting to hit, you know, your opposite field shot. So if you're a guy who likes to fade it, if you're going to try to hit a draw, you need to ask yourself, am I trying to hit a draw here because I'm trying to make birdie or, or wanting to make birdie? And, and then you need to reassess, like, what's my actual expectation from here? Because really, at the end of the day, again, from 180 yards in the fairway, the average score is 3.08 it's just not that hard for most of these guys to just take their seven iron, eight iron, whatever it is, six iron for some, and just hit the green and two putt and move on. And if you do that, you gain, I mean, 0.08 strokes. That's the generic scoring average. So obviously situationally it's different, but what is really not that hard of an, of an outcome to attain. If you could do that on every single hole, if you could gain 0.08 strokes, 18 times, you would literally be the best player <laughs> on earth. And it's just funny because when you lay it out like that, it seems like something's got to be wrong. I mean, back to catting for Zalatoris at the Texas Amateur, it was like the sixth hole and we were at like 165 yards in the rough. And I'm looking at the math and I'm like, Will, can you just hit this thing anywhere near the green? The expectation was like 3.3. And obviously I was kidding because the lie was decent. And But if you just put it anywhere near the green, it would be about a zero strokes gain shot on tour, let alone in the Texas amateur, it would for sure be a great shot, you know, and he just takes his nine iron or wedge, whatever it was at the time and hits it on the green and two putts from 25 or 30 feet. And as we're walking up, I'm like, that wasn't very difficult. And it's, it's understanding that we're just trying to, you have to stop thinking of shots. This is straight from Mark Grody's book, basically, but you have to stop thinking of whole shots. You have to start thinking in fractions of shots, even hundreds of shots and if you do that, uh, you, you, A, you'll remain sane, but B, your, your scores will drop like you can't even imagine. All right. So let's, let's dive into the strokes gained. So I think there's a lot of people out there that don't really understand what strokes gained is. And um, I, I know I don't, I understand, you know, a little bit here, but, you know, I would love it's, to get it's, super sim- it's super simple. So it, rather than saying greens and regulation or putts per green and regulation or total putts, those, those things are just, they're, they're short of information. I mean, hitting a green and regulation from a hundred is obviously different than hitting a green and regulation from 220. And so what strokes gain did again, Mark Brody, his book, every shot counts in conjunction with PJ tour took all of their shot length data and, and created strokes gain, which a, a, on the PGA tour, an eight foot putt has a 50, 50 make rate. So it's basically like, like a coin flip. If on tour you make an eight foot putt, well, you can't hit it one and a half times. So if you make an eight foot putt, you have moved it one and a half strokes closer to the hole in one stroke. You basically gain a half a stroke. If you two putt from eight feet, you moved it one and a half strokes closer to the hole. In two putts, you lose a half a stroke. God forbid you three putt. We'll let you guys at home figure out how to do that math in your head. But let's just say you have back-to-back holes with, with eight foot putts and you make one and you two putt one. Well, that is now you've taken three putts in two holes. You divide that, you've, you've averaged one and a half putts per hole. You've, you've, you're basically at a zero strokes gain average. And so, again, because of the great work from the PGA Tour and Mark Brody, we know basically how many strokes it takes to hole out from any condition, from the tee, fairway, rough, sand, and recovery. And the recovery is basically when you're in the trees. We know to the inch what the average expectation is from everywhere. So again, on the PGA Tour, 
a 400 yard par four plays with a 3.99 scoring average. If I, if I, if I hit it to a hundred yards in the fairway, again, we're now the scoring average is 2.8. I've taken it from a place where I should average four. I've moved it to a place where I should average 2.8. I've moved it 1.2 strokes closer to the hole in one stroke that, that 300 yard tee shot on the fairway gains me 0.2 shots. And, and I know that's a lot to, to digest, but if you just listen to that a couple times, it'll make sense. And you just take that same math from 50, 50, and you just extrapolate that out to any and all situations. And, and again, that's what the E of, of decade is expectation is just kind of knowing all those numbers, because that's honestly where I talk most of my players into not freaking out is just by knowing the math and, you know, yeah, it's a, a, a birdie hole. You know, you come up to a birdieable par five. It, scoring average is still usually 4.7, 4.8, something like that. So it's more birdieable than not. But if I sat there on the tee all day and made a hundred dollar bet with everybody that they're not going to make birdie, I guarantee you, I would walk away with a pocket full of money. So yes, it's more birdieable than another hole, but it still is on average a par hole. And so much of what I try to do, there's a, there's a book that I have everyone read from Josh Waitzkin called the art of learning. And inside that book, he's talking about, you know, the downward spiral and it's, you know, he says the, the first mistake is rarely fatal, but error begets error. And so you, you, you start making these compounding mistakes. And next thing you know, 30 minutes later, you're like, God, if I could just go back 30 minutes, I would do that all different. And that's, well, they don't let you do that. So too bad you've now turned, you know, your 74 into a 78. And th those are the ones, honestly, when parents call me and say, my son's still making stupid decisions or whatever it's always in a 30 minute series like that where they just freak out. I hate using the word quit because it has such a negative connotation, but basically they quit. There it is. I mean, so how bad do you want it? You know, it is interesting and it is hard to get people to prioritize working on their course management or their mind, because if you're putting bad and you sit out there on the putting green, you feel like you're physically getting better. Like I'm, I'm working on something just sitting around and sipping a diet Coke and thinking, People don't think, well, that's not getting better, but it actually is. It really is the easiest way to improve. Again, it, it sounds like a joke, but anytime you finish a round, which everyone finishes every single round and thinks they should have shot lower, there's only one of two things possible. You're not as good as you think you are, or you made mental and strategic mistakes. And I always just ask people, then what's your plan to fix those? And that's really the focus of the decade app is trying to eliminate those repetitive, just stupid mistakes. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, talking about the mental side there, uh, I agree with you. You know, majority of people don't consider working on their mental side as something that they can or they don't see the, I guess, the, as much of a benefit as, you know, hitting balls where you can see, oh, I'm actually doing something golf related or golf similar to golf so that I can uh, get better on the course. But uh, what, what kind of recommendations do you have for people that looking to improve that mental game, you know, whether it's the mental resiliency or, or you know, you talk meditation, you mentioned that earlier. I, so again, circling back to with Zalatoris, like there's just, it's just amazing looking back at how much of what we did was, I don't like to say an accident, but I mean, just trying to help a buddy that I've watched struggle since he was nine years old, you know, play better golf. Kid is obviously, as we're now seeing on the PGA Tour, is one of the best ball strikers on the planet. He hits the ball as good as he at 17. He hit the ball as good as he does right now. Like, it's incredible 
again, uh, in case he's listening, love you, Will, but in case he's listening, it's incredible how little success he had considering how great he hits it. And it, it wasn't his putter. It was just the fact that he's just trying, you know, strategically to force things far too much. Um, he didn't magically overnight become greater at anything. And it was just entirely about working on your mind. And so I, I tell people to work on their mind by taking time and actually doing a meditation app. I recommend Sam Harris's waking up app constantly. It's, it is by far the best meditation app out there, mainly because Sam, you know, he's a, he's a Stanford trained neuroscientist. He, he, he went to India on, you know, on a mission in search of himself and ate mushrooms and all kinds of stuff we probably shouldn't talk about on air, but most of the time that is a, a one-way ticket to not coming back. But Sam is actually a smart dude. He came back and he's like, Hey, I got it. I can explain this all better now. Again, combined with his neuroscience background and, and just seeing that guy, because the thing that I missed in the, you know, trying the other meditation apps like Calm or Headspace or whatever, and I'm sure they've gotten better, but initially it was just like, follow your breath, follow your breath. But they never told us why or then what to do with it. So you would finish and, you know, there's a saying, you have to take the yoga off the mat, that you have to take the meditation off the chair or off the cushion. And as stupid as it sounds like hearing that's like, oh, that makes sense. When you find yourself in a situation in life that is starting to frustrate you, you need to figure out how to focus on the present moment and, and not dwell on the past or the future. And, and if that doesn't work, then that's when you would actually start trying to do like a moving meditation, which is essentially how Tiger, we, we thought Tiger, we literally thought Tiger was playing the game hypnotized in the late nineties. I mean, that was a thing we thought. We thought he was, you know, pocket watch swinging in his face, being hypnotized, <laughs> which is so silly in hindsight. But that is, that is what we thought. And in hindsight, it was just a, a moving meditation, which, again, is basically what Zalatoris has turned the game into now, where he's got a, a very strict process he goes through every single day that's three hours long before every single round. And, you know, it encompasses his getting ready in the hotel all the way to driving there all the way to his warm up routine. And he finishes it as he's walking onto the first tee. And dude, when you think about the dedication that is, it's pretty impressive, but he's also made 2.2 million in the last nine months now. So it's that, that, that routine has paid off fairly well for him. Yeah. I mean, you think you hear so many guys say, Oh, if I just had some more time to, 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 to practice, I'd be able to make it out there or whatever. Uh, you hear that on every, every single driving range known to known to man. And, uh, but I don't think anybody well, puts three hours worth of preparation before they're even, you know, playing their rounds. It's funny because Tim Ferriss is a guy that I love and he's got a spot in his, uh, in his podcast. He was talking, I think it actually might've been with Sam Harris one time, but he, they, they were talking about, it and he said, if I find somebody who says they don't have 10 minutes to meditate, then I tell them they need to find 30. Cause like everybody's got 10 minutes. And if you, if you think you're so busy that you can't take 10 minutes a day for yourself, um, especially if you are also acknowledging like kind of head case, you know, we all know we are to a certain extent. I mean, we've all got that, that voice in our head that just rambles all day long. And, you know, I've had my experiences with depression and other things to where I know what that feels like. I've luckily never had an experience with a negative mental voice I can't even imagine what a lot of people it seems like go through with just constantly beating themselves up over this decision and this decision. And, you know, it's, it's a bit of a, you know, just a bit of an old saying that if you're depressed, you're living in the past, you're, you're focusing on something that's already happened. And if you're having anxiety, you're focusing on something in the future. And 
really, if you find yourself in either of those situations where you're facing a little depression or a little anxiety, ask yourself, am I, you know, just right here in the present moment? Because typically, unless you're actively being tortured or something, the present moment isn't that bad. And it's only because your brain is, is off in another, you know, time zone. And it's just, it is interesting because that's what, you know, again, Sam Harris, I love quoting all these guys and I do it all the time because it is just the truth. If, if you, you know, the, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. It, it's just, if you, damn it, I, this is my COVID brain right now. I can't think of how it is. I've, I usually say that. Well, basically Sam just talking about if you're not living in the present moment, you're, you're definitely actively working against yourself. It is amazing. If, if any of y'all out there have COVID or had COVID, I am the one that is currently suffering from the worst brain fog ever. Three months later, still we're mid-sensing me like, what the hell was I about to say? <laughs> Oops. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's move on. I wanted to also bring up putting practice and, and whatnot, because I know, you know, most people, I mean, in the practicing in general is, is probably not efficient or, or whatnot, but what are the recommendations you give for most people with their, with their putting? Well, 99% of the time for a player, it's not your, your stroke. It's not your line. It's, it's always your speed control. And it's, it's funny because you know, again, back when I was playing professionally, I used to always work on my stroke. It was just stroke, 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 stroke in a, in a block practice format. And my stroke in hindsight was probably pretty good. And then my speed practice, I would just randomly roll balls all around the green. And what you really have to realize is, if you've got a putt with any break on it at all, I can start it on the exact same line. And if I hit it a little bit softer, it's going to start going, it's going to start breaking a little sooner. If I hit it a little harder, it's going to start breaking later. So even with the exact same read and the exact same start line, my shot pattern, once the ball starts breaking is becoming wider due to my speed control rather than the things that you would think actually control your line. And, you know, not very many putts outside of four feet are actually dead straight. So your speed, you know, again, this is, I hate making definitive statements, but your speed actually is somewhat more important and probably completely more important than your line actually is. And again, I'm assuming you can start it on somewhat of a functional line. That typically does go hand in hand with your handicap level. You know, a a scratch is going to have better line control than a 10, better than a 20 and so on but all of their speed control relative to their ability is typically terrible. So just as you, as you just get more body awareness and body dynamics, um, your line will almost get better without even practicing your putting, you know, and, and I quit my home club four years ago. I like, I really don't play much golf anymore, but the times that I do go out and practice, I'll kind of do a couple speed drills, literally a few times a year. And, you know, the, the, the limited tournaments I play in like the U S mid-am and, and U S amateur qualifying and Texas amateur and stuff like that. I'm right around a zero strokes gain putter. When I do my stats compared to the PGA tour, which I'm going to say is pretty damn good considering I'm 47 and I don't play golf. And that really gets back to my only focus now is on speed control and, and just seeing and understanding that and really like understanding the why that is that that works really understanding that it's that breaking putt and, and people just go out there and you find yourself a, a putt with, you know, a 15 foot putt with two or three cups of break and just hit one hard and hit one soft and just watch what happens on the exact same line. It's, it's really incredible. And, and just trusting that. And so I, you know, I have people obviously work on your stroke, but work on your stroke away from the course, just get yourself a putting arc, um, you know, just a mat to just sit there and just hone your stroke. And then once you're at the course, 
practice putts from eight foot and in. And aside from that, then find a speed drill. Obviously we've got three different ones in the decade app that I think are great. Find a speed drill that you like and, and just wear that out on the putting green. That's, I don't want to say that's the only thing you need to be doing. That's basically the only thing you need to be doing outside of the golf course. Awesome. All right. We're going to move into the mulligan round. So this is just some quick answer questions. You're allowed to use one mulligan. So you get to skip one, uh, <laughs> nothing too crazy or embarrassing, but we'll let you, uh, take that out. So first one, worst club in the bag. It's so funny to say this, a gap wedge. How random is that? I have never found a gap wedge that I like. It's they're either, so perimeter weighted that they just look terrible or it's a blade that I can't bend the loft to get it right to actually fill in the gap gap wedge between my sand wedge and pitching wedge. I, it has been a problem for, I mean, I'm not kidding like 10 years. It's, wow. it's comical. I actually finally found the Callaway, the Mickelson grind, the really big sand wedge and pitching wedge. I actually found a couple that I really like a year or two ago and then I went and bought another 54 degree uh, with 14 degrees of bounce sand wedge. And I bent it to 48. So then it also has, it still has eight degrees of bounce, which is what most gap wedges have. And I've, I've kind of solved the problem, but I actually then had to put with a Sharpie, a red dot on the toe of it. So that way I wouldn't pull my <laughs> sand wedge. I'd make sure I had the right one whenever I'm standing over it. Right. Yeah, that would be bad. Uh, what's the best round ever? I uh, shot 62 in a the second round of a, a teardrop tour event in Jackson, Mississippi. And what's funny about it is I actually shot 67 or 8 in the first round with a double and a triple. It was in the afternoon round. I did not sleep that night. I was so pissed off. And I got up the next morning and I was like, "This you can shoot 59 on this course. It's the easiest course on the planet. And I went out the next morning and birdied the first seven. And then part eight, nine and birdie 10, 11 and 12. So I, I literally didn't sleep the night before. And now I'm standing on 13 T 10 under and I parted the last six. Wow. Nice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what superhero power would you choose if you could have one? Like actual superhero power? Yeah. That's a good question. I didn't know if that was a golf question. Or not. Um, I would say strength. Okay. Strength is what makes you hit it far, so probably <laughs> strength. I'm going to assume if you're strong, you you have a, a healthy body also. And since I just had elbow surgery two weeks ago, we'll go with strength. All right, sounds good. How, what's Although that's actually that's it's funny. That's what I was going to say about Sam Harris. What are the odds of that? That is hilarious. So what Sam he's got this phrase that he says the ability to not stay mad is like a superpower, and it actually is like. The, the, just the ability to have something go wrong. What are the odds of that random question being what it was I was actually trying to think of? COVID he's got the same where he, he says, you know, the ability to just not stay mad. The difference in staying mad for one minute versus five minutes versus two hours versus two days versus two years. Like some people just live their entire life mad. Right. And they're probably not very happy people. If you can just have the, the half life of a negative emotion is extremely short. And it, it is amazing if you just learn how to not focus on it. So that's what the meditation is about. You, you recognize the ruminating thought and you either let it go, or if you can't let it go, then that's when you really need to start trying an active meditation, like while you're out on the golf course or in life or whatever it is, that would be my superhero path, but I've got that. I don't say mad anymore, really, for the most part. So I've already got that one. So I'll still stay with strength. All right. What's your go-to karaoke song? <sighs> I would, I would use my mulligan on that one, but weirdest golf term would be my next one. Um, 
karaoke song. I know what it is. Carry on my wayward son from Kansas. All right. I mean, my daughters and I, when they're here, when they're, when they're staying with me, I jam that song every single morning. Cause it's the funniest video. It's go look at it on YouTube. It's Kansas. And they've got the most docile drummer ever. And everybody that I playing this rock song and they're just, everybody's just as chill as possible. It's a great song. Yeah, I don't think I've seen the music video for that. I'll have to pick it up. Uh, pretty fun. All right. Weirdest golf term. I'll take my mulligan on that one. I don't know. I mean, well, I guess some people just say golfing. Like it's you're not golfing or you, you didn't shoot a par. You didn't shoot a hole in one. You play golf. You made a four. You made a hole in one. All right. Um, <laughs> what's your, what's your favorite exercise or drill to improve your personal game? Um, you know, so a couple of years ago, I entered Q school again, kind of as a joke when I was 45, cause I just wanted to play some more golf. Um, again, I'm not a member of country club. So I was like, whatever, I'll throw away 5,400, just play in seven more rounds of golf. But, uh, after that, I had realized I had lost a lot of my speed from, you know, as a, I was a one twenties club head speed guy back in my twenties and it finally had gotten down to the low teens. And so I switched from, and this was part of Bryson and Como. Like I knew a lot of what they were doing. I mean, they've been working on this for two and a half years and I knew a lot of what they were working on just from being buddies with Como. And so I started switching to just lifting heavier and switching from just, I don't even remember what I used to deadlift, but I used to just grab a barbell with 200 on it and bang out 20 reps or something like that. And then I switched it to like 350 and would just do five or eight. So I just went with a lot heavier and that alone, it's from the top of my swing, I just feel so much stronger and so much faster. Like, you know, it took a good six or nine months, but there was just one day that I finally was hitting balls and just going up into my follow through. I could just feel this like speed, like when I was younger. And so just heavier deadlifts. All right. And what's the takeaway you want the uh, listeners to have from today? You know, I, I really do say all the time, I hope you shoot lower scores, but to be perfectly honest, I just want you to live a happier life. I've had some crazy stuff in my life. My sister was involved in a double murder suicide with her son. He was, he was undercutting a basketball game, <clears throat> excuse me, and wound up having some massive concussions, which I think were actually a smoke screen for, for burgeoning schizophrenia. And so, you know, I'm a huge Tony Robbins fan. I talk about Sam Harris and Tim, Fer- Tim Ferriss and all these, you know, self-helpy type people all the time. And so, you know, I've always thought that if this is good golf advice, it's probably good go- life advice also. And so really just taking away, like, you know, I hope you start a meditation practice and shoot lower scores. But really, if you start a meditation practice, you'll start to see your relationships, your marriage, your parenting, everything else will start to fall in line. And then it just takes a lot of, uh, you know, persistence to just stick with it because it is hard to, to, to put that time in there. But Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, all these great athletes, that's one of their key things that they, they excelled at was being able to still the mind. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Scott, for, for coming on today. Before we let you go, how can uh, people follow you, keep up with what you're doing? You know, at this point, if you just Google Decade Golf, you'll probably find me. My name is Scott Fawcett, S-C-O-T-T-F-A-W-C-E-T-T. You'll find us almost anywhere. And, and uh, you know, I apologize if you follow me on Twitter. I'm really not the, the, the internet bad guy that I play. It's apparently, a lot of people, I didn't know this, but apparently a lot of people, when they have, they're set in their ways, they don't want to listen to anything that counters it. But quite often, I mean, I, I just say it's just math. Like, people think I'm arguing 
Like I'm not arguing at all. They're the ones arguing. I'm just educating. And, and I'm just, this is how it works. I actually turned off the comments for the first time ever on a post yesterday because a guy on Twitter made, it was just a flat out incorrect statement, just mathematically a hundred percent wrong. And he's one of the guys that's pro rollback, pro golf course architecture, all this stuff. And we argue all the time on Twitter. And I'm like, this is just wrong. And I don't have the time to argue about it. Here's why it's wrong, blah, blah, blah. Posted the data and turned off the comments because I'm like, I got other stuff to do today. I'm not going to argue about something that I, it'd be literally like I'm arguing against somebody that's saying it's two plus two is five. Like it's this straightforward. So uh, sorry if you follow me on Twitter. I'm really not that bad of a guy. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's it for this episode of the Golf Under Power podcast. We'll have Scott's information in, in the show notes so you guys can uh, can follow him on Twitter and see how bad of a guy he really is. And uh, uh, thank you so much, you guys, for listening. And thank you, Scott, for coming on. Take care. Thank you, Doc. Thank you, guys, for listening to this episode. Hopefully, you've enjoyed this content on the go. If you found it helpful, please share with a friend and leave us a review on iTunes. This allows us to reach more golfers, just like you, that want to play under par. Do you want to be stronger and healthier? Well, I've got a resource, Golf Fitness Tips. It's a free Facebook group where we talk about how to take care of our bodies so that we can play more golf, we can play golf longer in life, and we can play better on the course. If that interests you, then check out the link below or search for Golf Fitness Tips on Facebook.